0: Hello. Hello. Hola. Hola. Bonjour. Bienvenido. And welcome
1: to Radio
2: Radio Natura.
1: To Radio Natura.
2: Voices from around the world
0: bringing you all things related to nature and sustainability,
1: rethinking what it means to live in peace with nature,
0: and imagining a brighter future.
1: Brought to you by the Pax Natura Foundation. I hope you're having a great day. I'm Jordan Anderson, and you're listening to Radio Natura. For this episode, we'll be taking you to an interview that we got to do with one of the co-founders of the PAX Natura Foundation, Randall Tulpenrud. Randall was kind enough to let me come to the PAX Natura headquarters in Salt Lake City for the interview, where we talked about Randall's journey into environmentalism and the founding of PAX. My fellow podcasters, Elizabeth Gamara and Jimena Garate Gonzalez de la Vega, were able to join the conversation by Zoom. We hope you enjoy. Uh, Do you mind introducing yourselves for our listeners?
3: My name is Randall Tolpingrud, and I'm uh, with the Pax Natura Foundation here centered in Salt Lake City. Founder of Pax Natura. One of the founders. One of the founders. Yeah, one One of the founders. So can you tell us, what
1: was your last experience with nature?
3: With nature? Yeah. Well, I just came in from my backyard, and uh, (laughs) it's it's the springtime, and... Uh, things are starting to grow and to bloom and it's a really beautiful time of the year and we've come through a very dry we've been in a drought here in Utah for quite some time and it's been a very hard year for mother nature but we've had some good snowfall and now we've got some beautiful sunshine the snow's melting and Nature's doing her miraculous thing as she usually does.
1: Well, thanks for that. So, mm-hmm. as one of the founders of Pax Natura, can you explain for our listeners what is Pax Natura? How is it different from, uh, how was it born and how is it different from other environmental organizations?
3: Well, it's, it's interesting, but it was actually born in the, the rainforest in Central America uh, in Costa Rica where we acquired a tropical rainforest near the Parque Nacional de Bravo Carrillo in central uh, Costa Rica and then we donated it to the National Biodiversity Institute where we struck up a partnership uh, to uh, help them train parataxonomists because they were doing the world's first biodiversity inventory of the entire country. And they needed a place to train the people that would go out into the, into the forest to gather the, the species. So if you think about that, a small Central American country for the first time in human history inventorying the entire biodiversity of that country. And we approached them and said, would you like this forest to do your training? And they said, of course. So we gave it to them. And then we struck up a relationship, and we've been a big supporter of their work for many, many years. The Instituto Nacional de Biodiversidad. So Pax Natura, peace with nature, really came from uh, the Bosque Lluvioso Rio Costa Rica. Bosque Lluvioso Rio Costa Rica means rainforest on the river Costa Rica. And well, we started with was the Bosque Juvioso Foundation to look for ways to protect and help preserve tropical rainforests. But the Bosque Juvioso Foundation is a tongue twister for a lot of people. (laughs) So so we decided we needed a more uh, general approach to it. And so I remember several of us were on a flight back from Costa Rica to the U.S. and we were talking about that. And the thought popped into my mind, well, you know, there was the uh, Pax Romana, you know, back in the Roman Empire days, of peace among peoples. Mm -hmm. And so the thought occurred to me, but what about peace with the natural world? Because the single greatest challenge and threat we face on planet Earth right now is not the situation, it's not nuclear war, and it's not uh, racial, social justice. The greatest threat humans face right now is environmental. It's climate change, the loss of biodiversity. And so basically humans had, were declaring an unspoken war on nature. And by that I mean the loss of biodiversity, the loss of tropical rainforests, deforestation, degradation, uh, the rising oceans due to climate change, uh, acidification of the oceans, um, the, the loss of glaciers worldwide and drinking water and water for farming. In every direction you look, we, we were confronted with this stark reality that humans knowingly or unknowingly, unwittingly, we're destroying the very home that gave birth to every single human being on this planet. And so we thought, why don't we declare not a Pax Romana, a peace among people, we thought, why don't we declare a Pax Natura, a peace, peace with nature and what that means can be interpreted in a wide variety of ways but what it basically means to me is that mother nature is sovereign she we can say she is our sovereign nature it has an infinite organizing capacity it organizes everything beautifully perfectly a tropical rainforest is a per- per- perfect balance of Everything in, a, in an ecosystem. It took us Thousands of years to evolve to the point where we realized that nature was an ecosystem a system connecting different components and, and, and things about it and it's all organized perfectly that the correlation infinite correlation of natural law governing the universe perfectly uh, is a self-evident truth it's a self it's an axi- it's axiomatic it's an axiomatic truth and yet humans were coming along and we were, were bungling things up in every direction so we have to we we felt like we had to remind human beings of our sovereign Mother Nature is, as uh, the organizing power of Mother Nature, to organize all life forms in balance, in harmony with all others. Nature is perfect in every way. And humans seem to only be able to do damage to that delicate balance. So we needed to declare peace with nature, and so we started the Pax Natura Foundation. Was
1: there a specific event or a time in your life that galvanized you as an environmentalist and that led you to those realizations you just spoke about?
3: Well, uh, I think that it goes back to when I was very young and we were, you know, we look up at Alta here, the ski resorts. I would go up into the canyons and and whenever I was up in nature there just became this warm, wonderful feeling of being connected to natural law. And, uh, you know, walking and hiking in a beautiful environment, beautiful setting, it's very inspirational because it's life, you know, you're surrounded by life. And I think that's probably the start of it. But one thing that sort of galvanized, uh, I could say there are many things that galvanized, but one thing in particular that I uh, recall was after we had started working with the Costa Rican government We were given diplomatic status, and we uh, came down for an event uh, during the Abel Pacheco administration. And the Costa Rican government had announced, uh, and we were working with them at the time, on the world's most successful rainforest conservation program, the Pagar Servicio Ambiente, Payment for Environmental Services program. And we were invited to come down and participate in, a, in an event that would be taking place at the, in Cartago, the provincial capital of the country, where the president would announce a new initiative, a new uh, proposed law in Costa Rica that had in fact gone through the first phase in the Assemblia Nacional. And the law basically would elevate and extend to nature a bill of rights. A bill of rights for the protection of nature on a par with human rights. So, not only extend rights to human beings, the right of life and pursuit of happiness or whatever, like the U.S. Constitution, but also a bill of rights for the preservation and protection of the natural world.
1: Which was a pretty radical idea at the time, wasn't it?
3: Yes, it was, and uh, so it went through the first phase, and Abel Pacheco was a big supporter of Pax Natura. We spent many hours in his private chambers, and, uh, and he helped us uh, dramatically, and was very appreciative of the work of Pax Natura. Well, we had been to the Bosque Vioso earlier in the day, and this event was going to be in the evening, And so we arrived, and even though we had diplomatic status, we were able to come right to the front uh, of the big crowds that had gathered in Cartago for this event, and the announcement that the President was going to be making about this law. And so we got there a little late, and we we were able to get to our seats up front, and as soon as we got there, the President started speaking. And he said, As God is my witness, there will be no more dead animals on our highway, there will be no more degraded rivers, there'll be no more deforestation. And what we are proposing today, and I, it is my great pleasure to announce that the Atemblia Nacional has adopted the first phase of this law, is a law to extend, to extend the, 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 the rights of, all rights for the preservation of natural law on a par with human rights. And as he said that, the Costa Rican people, thousands of people, suddenly burst into the Costa Rican national anthem. And they started singing this song. And it's a beautiful national anthem. And chills went up and down my spine. Because it's the first time in my life I truly felt a political uh, I felt uh, Patriotism, a surge of patriotism, a political patriotism, that here was a country proposing not a not a political, you know, uh, thing for human beings or whatever, but here was a government willing to to place and elevate the protection of insects and and animals and plants and trees on a par with human rights. The first time in human history. And to me, that was an expression of patriotism for life itself. It was an expression of patriotism for life. Just life. Just that. And that to me, (laughs) is still to this day, Instills a wave of patriotism for this is what we should all be thankful for, not narrow political boundaries of competition and and economic development, uh, you know, and greed and exploitation and degradation. No, 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 no. What we as a human species should be striving for is the recognition of the supreme. Power, of and sovereignty of natural law, governing the universe without problems, and we must acknowledge that nature knows best, not humans. We can never improve on natural, on natural law. We cannot make better genes for uh, food consumption or corn. We cannot genetically modify corn to throw in random genetic variants and expect that things are going to be just fine we must acknowledge the intelligence of nature itself and work within the context of nature's intelligence and unless we do that we are condemning ourselves to uh, the destruction of this planet and that's what that law to me represented a wave of patriotism for life itself.
1: Oh, that's amazing. It's amazing. an amazing story. Was there much uh, resistance to that
3: law? Well, that moment, it was a wonderful thing that was very much appreciated by the Costa Ricans who were there. But interestingly enough, the Catholic Church objected very strongly to this law. Why is that? Because they didn't feel like it was appropriate to extend the right to life of animals on a par with human life and human animals. Mm-hmm. We're animals, just like every other animal. And every animal has a right to life. Every species has a right to existence. And they said, no, humans are superior. We are the dominant species. and you know, God has given humans dominion over the earth. And I reject that. Pax Natura rejects that idea. We have to live in balance with nature, not control it. Because we're incapable of controlling it. Let's figure out a way to work and live with nature rather than continue to try to rearrange it and destroy it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. In
1: your lifetime, what have you seen in the destruction of nature, in your own.
3: Oh my own goodness! Time. Well, wh- how long did you? How long do you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it was one or two Well, examples. okay, I'm a
3: scuba diver, and this is uh, 30 years ago. We used to go to the Bahamas, and we used to do reef dives, and we used to do dives in the coral and the beautiful brain coral in the Bahamas. In one year, I remember, we were there, and the coral was very much alive. It was. It was incredible. It was beautiful. And we were diving in between the coral, and I remember the sunlight on the coral was golden color, and it was just vibrant. We went back the next year and did the same dives in the same areas, and the coral had all died. The bleaching of the coral from rising temperatures in the ocean. I've seen that. I've seen the effects of the bark beetle uh, throughout the state of Utah and the western United States. Temperatures don't get cold enough anymore, because the planet is warming, and it doesn't kill off the beetle. So if you go to the Uintas, for example, or if you go down to southern Utah, or any of the forests that are still in you, about half the trees are all dead up in uh, up in uh, the Uintas, one of the most magnificent ecosystems in the world. And half those trees are all dead from the bark beetles, because they don't die off naturally anymore. Yes. And I've... You know, I took my children, when they were very young, on a tree trip. And I wanted to show them uh, uh, the different types of uh, forests, and the different types of trees uh, in the western United States. So we started off in uh, the Ponderosas in uh, Lake Tahoe, and then we drove up the coast, to the Siskiyou in uh, in Oregon, and then on up into Washington for the Olympic Forest up there, Olympic Rainforest up there. When I was young, the Seattle World's Fair was held in the 1960s, early 60s, and I remember we went to the Olympic Rainforest, and it was just magnificent because it was the wettest, most humid forest perhaps in the world at that time. And I remember there was moss growing everywhere, and the, t- and the trees were spectacular, and those huge, huge, um, beautiful, wonderful uh, trees that provided the fuel for building the United States and building houses across the country. Uh, I took my kids up there, and and the only thing that was left of that Olympic rainforest was a was a. Uh, a carcass of shrub, uh, of branches and stuff. It had been clear cut. The whole thing had been clear cut and it was gone. And then dimensional lumber was no longer available. You couldn't get two by tens, two by twelves anymore because those big trees that they took from the Pacific Northwest had all been harvested. So then they started planting tree farms up there, these small diameter trees, and then they'd have to cut them up into small pieces, and that's where engineered woods began to be used to build homes and office buildings, uh, where they glue them together, glue the little parts together. So those big magnificent uh, trees in the Pacific Northwest that Lewis and Clark just talked about and raved about, those forests are gone.
1: So you actually saw the destruction of the old-growth forest. Absolutely,
3: rainforest. absolutely. And then, of course, the plight of the rainforest is very well known, and we've done a lot of work to document that, especially in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And, uh, dis- you know, rainforest disappearing at the you know, about 200 hectares per second per day on this planet. And that is a tragedy that's beyond measure. That is beyond measure. You cannot live on this planet and not see what's happening. You just can't. Uh, it's so obvious now, I mean, to everyone, what's happening, I think.
1: Yeah. Even in my own short lifetime, I feel like I've seen the snow dwindle. Change. The snow Absolutely. has changed and dwindled in Salt Lake.
3: Last year, we didn't have a winter, and we didn't have ski season hardly at all here in Utah. And this year, we only got a ski season in February. And normally, we have snowfalls in October. Yeah. We didn't get anything until January or February. And this is consistent, and it doesn't snow in the valley anymore. It just snows in the mountains, and it rains in the valley. The weather is changing dramatically. Yeah, it's a really interesting time. Yes, Thank you so much, Randall.
2: I've enjoyed everything you have to say. I, with your last point, it seems like you highly emphasize awareness. But it seems like awareness isn't enough. There are many different um, awareness campaigns, projects that kind of mirror the philosophy of Pax, but still human beings are, are going their ways. So what else is needed besides awareness and what does that look like, especially with everything you've witnessed?
3: Well, you know, uh, the chair of our foundation is Jane Goodall and, and Jane Goodall is very much aware that awareness is not enough. However, to engage the youth of the world through her Roots and Shoots program is a beautiful example That we need to retrain, not only do we need to retrain and rethink our educational system of turning young children into uh, automatons, you know, basically get them out of business school, put them to work, and let them work for the corporations, and make money for corporations, and then... Uh, contribute to the overall problem. Um, The type of education is crucial for how this awareness is built into. It's the youth of the nation, and I look to Costa Rica for that, because in Costa Rica, environmental education has been a critical component of the entire educational system. And they have a saying there, that every child must not only be uh, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic literate. Okay, They must know the basics of, um, you know, how to count and things like that. Reading, writing, and arithmetic literate. But they must also be bio-literate. They, every, every child must understand the bio, their biological connection to the world around them. And they must look, uh, and uh, they they teach children language based on animal behavior and things like that that are going on in the world, and give them that connection, their connection to why it is why is it so important that we protect uh, the you know why is it so important that we protect trees for instance what why, what are the what are the benefits of trees? And children need to learn that. And then they need to go out and practice that. So, Wangere Maathai and her emphasis on planting trees in Africa and the millions of trees that were planted uh, is, a, is an example of that. Um, the, uh, uh, there are so many different types of, of, of groups that are forming in the world Uh, today that I think are so important, and I would call attention to Jime's. Here's an example of what Hime has done. When I was in Mexico just a while ago, I did all my Christmas shopping, one-stop shopping. I got all my Christmas shopping done, (laughs) because she's taking uh, old parachutes and making backpacks and things out of them. So she's recycling all these, and they're wonderful, and they're very well made. And I can't wait to give them to my family here at Christmas time, and uh, so there. Every human being, everybody has got to get involved. You know, uh, I'm. You know, so I'm in my 70s, and we're slowing down a little bit. But you, you people are the young, the, the youth, and. It's been really exciting to see your group grow because it's your group that has to solve the problems that we have given you. My generation has given you the greatest challenge in the history of the, of the world. There's never been a greater challenge that we've extended to you by destroying the very the foundation of life itself. And so now you have to look at what can you do what can the youth of the world do to help reverse this process? And the energy and the creativity of young people in the world is really going to be uh, all of our salvation. Has to be. So it, uh, there's a lot that there there's a lot that has to be done, and uh, you know, uh, you guys are the solution for that, not me, unfortunately, and my humble apologies for what I've given you, you know, and what I've contributed to that uh, destruction. Anyway.
2: Thank you, Randall. Uh, no, I think with what you mentioned in terms of education and what PAX is, is tackling, not only Costa Rica but also Mexico and Guatemala is is a wonderful example. So thank you. Jimena has a question.
0: I just want to add and say thank you, Randall, for always talking about my project, but also that Veleta, my brand, uh, came up from my experience with sailing. When I actually experienced the connection with nature by seeing how the, the wind, the water, and the sail had this connection, and I could be there and, and, and be with nature. I, it was when I was 10 years old, and that's what what has been pulling me into projects. And also, people like you and Jane Goodall, that, you not only leave us a problem, but also an inspiration in what we can do and achieve if we actually act for a better world.
3: Well, the, uh, those experiences I think are happen to many, many young people where they're, they take a hike or they go camping for the first time or whatever. They get out into this is what Jane is so good about doing with Roots and Shoots. It's a it's getting them away and out of the classroom and get them into the natural world and and get them to look at a flower and get them to look at what the miracle of spring, the absolute miracle of having life come back in these, all these beautiful trees and everything like that, inspire them to do that because the Costa Ricans understood that if you don't instill an appreciation and a love of nature in the, in the youth of the nation, then you're, they're not going to work to protect it. So they have to learn that their lives are dependent on that. And if they learn to love it, then as they grow up, they'll want to work to protect it. And that's exactly what happened in that country and why they went from 20 percent forest cover in 1980 to 53 percent forest cover today. Uh, The most successful rainforest conservation program ever conceived. And they've done it largely by getting the youth of the nation. Young people get it on the environment there. Now there's there's some blowback to that, but for the most part they still have the youth. And every nation has to get the youth into the natural world. Teach children the value of consuming fresh food, fresh fresh from Mother Nature.
1: Have you seen a new Netflix documentary? It's called Kiss the Ground. Have you heard of that?
3: I have not. Movie? No. It's
1: a really excellent movie. I think you'd like it. It's exactly...
3: Kiss the Ground.
1: Kind of what you're talking about. Beautiful. Soil Regeneration, it's yeah. about regenerative agriculture, there ancient agriculture techniques, no-till farming. It's a, it's a really beautiful movie. I think you'd like it.
3: There's another one called The, the Biggest Little Farm. That's an excellent you've, movie. Have you seen that? I love that. I mean, I don't know how they're doing right now, but they really hit and are going in the right direction with that, and it's really quite a remarkable documentary. Yeah,
1: that, that yeah. documentary inspired me a lot.
3: Yeah, and that's... What is that? That whole experience is... They're them learning from Mother Nature, learning about well, maybe maybe uh, coyotes are not so bad, you know. Maybe there's a role for coyotes in agriculture. Maybe there's a role for these different kinds of insects and and species that otherwise would be eradicated and destroyed, and then destroy part of nature along with it. Mm-hmm. Rather, they learn to to live with them and learn to live, and that's the lesson of the 21st century. We must learn to live according to natural law or perish. Yep. We don't have any choice anymore.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. Well so you've been, you've been in this fight for a long time now and you've met a lot of people doing this. Can you talk about... Well, I want to ask about networking and just kind of the power of connections and how you've made oh, those connections and
3: Boy, how it's it's an you. interesting story. So, okay. How long do we have here, by the way? <laughs> Let me let's see I, when I this recorder is going to run. I don't want to <laughs> take too much of your time, but this is a great story. You're going to like the story because this is how it works. Okay. So we when we bought the Bosque Avioso in Costa Rica, we didn't have a clue what we were going to do with it. <laughs> uh, here, these green goes down here. We had some idea of an eco lodge, and we worked with the ecotourism society to come up with guidelines for what. What's an eco lodge? Because everybody was advertising themselves as an eco lodge, and we didn't know what, what it was. So we came up with some guidelines with them. We had a marvelous conference, and afterward we just ended up buying this rainforest. And then we asked ourselves, why did we do this? <laughs> you know, it's like. So at any rate, I we it it evolved because I at the time. I was working on a project with Utah State University uh, uh, in North Salt Lake. It was a, a Utah House 2000 project uh, where we were working on gr- the. We were, I was involved in the very early stages of the green building industry so green building industry is building in accordance with natural law so using more healthy materials architectural finishes that off gas Then one of the first most glaring examples of of, uh, indoor air quality issues, IAQ started because the Environmental Protection Agency's headquarters in Washington, D.C. replaced some carpet in the building, and everybody started getting sick and staying home. They finally figured out it was because of the uh, volatile organic compounds coming off of the glues that were used to adhere the backing on the carpet. So indoor air quality went down, and uh, health problems went up. And so that's where IAQ started. And so we were involved in that in the early stages. So we were looking for healthier materials that didn't off-gas, and that's when architectural finishes like paints and stains and sealers We started to realize that people were breathing this stuff and it was making them sick and giving them cancer and things like that. But you couldn't blame it on it because there wasn't a lot of studies that had been done on it. So we started looking for materials that didn't smell. When you get into a new car, that smell in a new car is a highly toxic collection of VOCs. And so that same thing happens in a new home or a new building. And so then... uh, Then comes along the energy problems in the 1970s. And energy efficiency went up because builders responded by tightening up building envelopes and putting in insulation, which trapped air inside buildings. And then the air that was trapped inside buildings combined with the unhealthy building materials made for a toxic soup. And so as energy efficiency went up, indoor air quality went down, and the building industry then responded by saying, well, we want to do energy efficiency, but we've got to do completely different look at what the materials are going to be. So anyway, we started down that green building, and then we started looking at resource efficiency and all the other things that went with it, and then that led us to the plight of the rainforest and the destruction of the rainforest in terms of Exotic woods like mahogany and that sort of thing that drives deforestation. And palm oil and all those things that are the principal drivers, and especially cattle and beef consumption and diet. and and, You know, all those things. And so we put together for the Bosque Ivioso this marvelous concept. uh, A series of education pavilions in the rainforest. A... A biodiversity uh, pavilion of the biodiversity in the rainforest, the plants and the animals and everything. We put together uh, a pavilion dedicated to a renewable uh, energy and sustainable design pavilion, is how the actual project was put together and designed uh, to show that it was we were integrating it into nature and we were building these pavilions out of bamboo and materials that didn't involve taking any trees and we had, a seri- we had an education pavilion for the pharmaceuticals that were coming out of the rainforest, the medicines and the benefits to come out of the rainforest. It was really a beautiful concept. It was really a lovely concept. Well, this uh, master plan we put together, we started circulating it. And so I would be going down to Costa Rica and we'd be talking to the different agencies, the Costa Rican agencies and environmentalists and things like that. Well, Carlos Jimenez, a good friend of ours down there, said, hey, there's a guy that wants to meet you. um, And he wants to hear about the, you know, called the Bosque Vioso Foundation back then, but he wants to hear about your master plan. And I said, well... I don't have any time this trip, but let's do it on the next the next go-around when I come back down. And he said, well, are you sure? Because he's really an interesting man. He's a very interesting man. He's got high connections and things like that. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to meet him, but we can't do it now. So, you know, a couple of months, a few months go by, and I come back to Costa Rica. And he says, this guy, his name's Federico Gutierrez, he wants to meet you. And I said... Okay, okay, but we've got a real agenda because I had the radio broadcaster that came down with us and we were doing radio interviews in the rainforest. And I won't have time to meet with him, so we delayed it again. So I put it off. Finally, the third or fourth time, he says, Now this guy really wants to meet you, okay? So I want (laughs) you to come. And so I said, Okay, well, where do you want to meet? And he said, "We'll go to his home. And so we drove in something and all of a sudden we pull up to the front door of this beautiful home, and they open the door, and my God, it's a museum inside. It's spectacular, and he comes and he's dressed in a uh, an ascot and a sport coat, and and I'm thinking, why is this guy interested in the rainforest? You know? <laughs> anyway, um, so I give him the the spiel, and I show him the, the master plan of what we've got going. And he's staring at it and looking at it, and uh, at the end of the presentation, he said, this is the most, this is the strangest comment I've ever had on this master plan. He said, that's absolutely erotic. (laughs) (laughs) I've never had anybody say anything like that before. (laughs) Anyway, so... Uh, He was very gracious, and he showed us all of the stuff he'd gathered from around the world. Literally, his home was a museum. It was beautiful, all marble, and Mm -hmm. fantastic. And I go back to the hotel, the Hotel Bocambilla in Santo Domingo. I walk into my room. The phone's ringing. I pick it up. Randall. He'd always just say, Randall. (laughs) Federico Gutierrez. Your project concept is beautiful, but your presentation is weak. You need some support to your board. We had just started forming the Board of Trustees, Board of Directors. He said, "Um, I'd like to take you, I'd like you to come with me tomorrow night and meet a friend of mine, a man I grew up with, and, uh, and he would like to hear about your project. And I said, Well, Fine. I said, who is that? And he said, Oscar Arias. I said, Oscar Arias, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and uh, was former president of Costa Rica? And he said, yes. Uh, he and I grew up together, and I'd like you to meet him. I said, well, I think I could squeeze him into my busy <laughs> <catchy>. schedule. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the next night, we go over and we're, we meet Oscar, and he is a very wonderful evening and his beautiful home in uh, San, San Jose. And at the end of that, I just said, we would like you to join our board of trustees as the chair of our foundation. And he said, I would be honored. And so, so, I go home from that meeting. I walk into the hotel. The phone's ringing. It's uh, Feather Eagle. Randall, I'd like you to come tomorrow evening or meeting with some friends of mine who are having a dinner party. And before we do that, though, there's some people in town. The Prince of Asturias is in town. I'd like you to meet him from, uh, from Spain. Uh, also, the Crown Prince of Norway is there, and I would like you to meet him. And he wanted to introduce me to the royal houses of Europe uh, the next day before he we went to this dinner party, sit-down dinner for about 200 people in this beautiful home uh, where I met all these amazing people. Well, that man (laughs) uh, connected us up to uh, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was in Salt Lake City for the Olympics. He set a meeting up for us to meet him in Salt Lake. Desmond Tutu was a wonderful man who loves Pax Natura, and he accepted our invitation. He said, uh, oh, yes, and I have... uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, he gave us his connection, his uh, contact information. We sent Gorbachev a letter. Gorbachev sent a very nice letter back, packs and wished us great success, but was unable to join. And then he called me and he said, Randall, we have uh, now added uh, the Aung San Suu Kyi from uh, Myanmar. That was when the Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, before what's happened to the uh, Rohingya. Mm But anyway, he reached her under house arrest in Burma, in Rangoon, by phone. I don't know how he did it. And he added her to our board of trustees. Then he got a hold of Jose Ramos Horta in East Timor and added him, who's Nobel laureate, so was Aung San Suu Kyi, added him to our board. And then... We had a luncheon for Oscar Arias, because we were giving him an award in Puerto Rico. And we went there, and it was a big conference taking place. It was a mentoring conference taking place there. And we arranged for a special lunch for Oscar Arias. And Federico Gutierrez came, and we we were sitting at the same table. And at that table was Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, the daughter of Robert F. Kennedy. Deepak Chopra, I don't know if you know who Deepak Chopra is. He was sitting at the table. Betty Williams from the United Kingdom was sitting right next to Oscar, or right next to uh, Federico Gutierrez. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there, and Oscar. And then we had several other tables because we had a range of luncheon with. We had the people that were doing the uh, Geneva Accords for the peace agreement in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We had a quite a gathering of people there. And while I I got up, I did the award uh, with Faust, with Forrest Kutch. We did a beautiful award for, with Oscar, and he gave a nice talk and thanked us profusely for the award. He very much appreciated it. And then Federico dragged my arm, and he said, She's in. And I said, Who's in? And he said, Betty Williams, who was sitting next to him. So while he was sitting there, and while I was talking, he talked her into joining their board. Okay, now here's one man. One man that I in my busy schedule didn't have time to meet with, okay? And I kept putting him off. And here was Mother Nature trying to organize this for us. And it it was a miraculous and so many, for so many years and so many trips. Costa Rica was miraculous because, first of all, gringos don't buy up rainforests and give them back to the country in different parts of the world. And that gift back to the Costa Ricans opened up the floodgates of the support of natural law. If you gain the support of natural law, get out of the way because nature just takes off. I didn't have anything to do with Federico Gutierrez. Uh, introducing us to five Nobel Peace Prize winners. And then shortly thereafter, I got an email from Jane Goodall. She said, would you be able to meet with me in Costa Rica when I come down? I'd like to, I want to meet with Oscar Arias, their buddies. And I said, well, I think I can take some time out of my busy schedule (laughs) (laughs) to meet, to meet with you. And that's, and then she came down and we walked through the rainforest together. And it was a mirac it was a magical day at the Bosque Vioso. Because we started to walk into the deeper part of the forest, and all of a sudden I heard this boom ba boom ba boom boom I heard this rock band going on <laughs> about six kilometers away in Guapilas. It was a national holiday and they were having a celebration. And I was I walked ahead of her, I, I let her walk alone behind me because I knew she probably wanted to be alone, walking in the rainforest. And I was so horrified, I turned around and came back and I said, I am so sorry, I have never heard this before here at the Bosque de And she said, oh, she denies this, but I know it's true. She, <laughs> she, she looked at me and she said, Uh, No, it doesn't bother me. It reminds me of the old Tarzan movies (laughs) when you hear the drums in the background. And then uh, Jane, uh, uh, I asked her to come to Salt Lake. She was going to the Olympics to do an event with Angelina Jolie. Well, Angelina Jolie is an environmentalist, and she had been invited to go. Jane didn't want to go to the Olympics because of the... Rodeo that was scheduled to take place. But fortunately, we had a trustee, Forrest Kutch, who was able to work with the tribes and got them to approve it. And now Forrest and Jane are good friends because he helped convince her to come. So I convinced her to stay with me because I would you know give her a, a home to stay in and stuff like that. And so so she uh, came to Salt Lake City. We had a private dinner one night in Salt Lake City, and you know, a private dinner with Jane is really a lovely thing. And and at the end of that dinner, I said, "Would you would you chair our foundation with the Oscar?" And she said, oh, "I would be delighted to, to chair here." <laughs> and so then that began our relationship, and that was in two, that was in 2002. Actually, we began our relationship with her earlier than that, but uh, the Olympics was really when she first came. And uh And I don't know how Jane found out about us. I think it was through a professor at the New York University system in New York State that Googled us or something like that back then and found us and then told her about us and then that's uh, and we had a meeting with her in in Costa Rica and had a wonderful but you just never know where these connections are coming from. And, we, and and I can tell you the stories of Mexico. That's a whole new and a, a whole different. Uh, but, you know, in Mexico, we published a book in Spain and then on GMOs and the Mexicans, especially the campesinos and people with regard to traditional maize and corn that hate GMOs and hate industrial food. And when we published that book and then distributed it free of charge (laughs) in Mexico uh, to a group of people including Hime and uh, Hime's sister Machi and then Hime's uh, aunt uh, uh, Luisa and then Elena Khan, and all these wonderful people and Ana Ruiz and all these wonderful people. I mean, people in Mexico are amazing. They're brilliant. They're so intelligent. And we we just spent a little bit of money publishing the book, distributing it, and it's all about coming back to natural law in agriculture. And it registers with those people, especially a biologist in Costa Rica, at the University of Costa Rica. Uh, uh, another, I forget, sorry, sorry, I forgot his name right now. But he's the one that made the connection to Ana Ruiz in Mexico. And those connections just grow and they proliferate. And when your, your soul, your heart is in the right spot, People know that. They appreciate what you're trying to do, and they want to help you. So it's like, just tell the truth. Tell what you're trying to accomplish and why it's important to you. Because it's a love in your soul. It's a love in your heart. And that's where connections take off. That's where they, that's where they go.
1: So, back to what you said about how gringos don't usually give back land to the government. How does a guy from Utah end up getting involved in Costa Rican conservation?
3: Very logical connection. We come from the desert, and now we're in Costa Rica <laughs> in the rainforest, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, that's always been the question. We didn't know anything about the rainforest, so I went to Dinah Davidson at the University of Utah. She was teaching classes on the rainforest, and she was with the uh, Organization for Tropical Studies, OTS, in Costa Rica, and we made all those connections to NBO and Fundacor and Funafifo and, uh, and, and all those connections down there. And then we joined the United Nations where we started interfacing with everybody else in the world working on rainforest and, and conservation issues and climate, you know, the uh, climate issues from the forestry perspective. We were invited to attend a conference uh, by the International Ecotourism Society to come up with guidelines for what constitutes an Ecolodge and we happened to get into the best group, we think. and That's where we met Ana Baez and, uh, and Federico, Federico Munoz and uh, all these wonderful Costa Ricans and uh, Carlos Jimenez and all these wonderful Costa Ricans who, who connected us up to all of the people in the country doing really remarkable things. and Great work uh, for, for the environment because Costa Rica is full of people like that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and that's what led us to the plight of the rainforest, and we heard the forest was about to be cut, so we decided to buy it. Mm-hmm. And then once we did that, then we had to figure out what to do with it, and then we found MBO and gave it to them. So it was uh, not a very logical thing, but <laughs> we've learned a lot more about the rainforest since that time, and uh, it's and you fall in love with the rainforest, and you fall in love with uh, forests in generally, yeah, in general. and Go takes you from one thing to the next. And then when you start, I think if every human being could attend the Conference of the Parties conventions, you know, we honored Cristiana Figueres a year and a half ago, who got the Paris Climate Agreement done. And, and by the way, her brother's going to be the next president of Costa Rica for the second time, uh, Jose, uh, Jose Figueres. But when you go to, the, to these international conferences on climate, where for the first time in human history, every single nation on the planet is, comes to an agreement. This has never been done before. Ever been done before. And when you go to these, uh, the COP, you know, COP, 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 COP 15 in Paris and they go different parts of the world and you go to these and every country is represented is represented and every country has a cultural event taking place about uh, what their con- how their country dealing with climate change issues and everything and how their pleading for their countries and you know, they're help please don't, we don't want to go underwater in the Pacific Rim we and you see firsthand uh, the plight of indigenous peoples worldwide especially women and the, and, the, and the role that women have in terms of agriculture worldwide and they're coming and they're showing and they're telling their stories
1: and all these stories of
3: all these different countries, it's the most remarkable experience to see people from every country, places you've never heard of before, and they're sharing their stories about the plight of a changing climate and what's happening to their country as a result. Well, so you witnessed that
1: landmark legislation, first of its kind in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think
3: other countries, other take countries their have? Um, and uh, uh, the first country to abolish plastics was uh, Bhutan, I believe. And also they have a happiness index that they use for Like instead of a gross n- national product, they use gross national in- happiness inventory. And other countries in Central and South America have adopted now provisions to their constitution that extend rights to the environment. So it is growing. And Costa Rican RED, however people, whatever people think of RED, reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, and however much corporations have damaged that with their exploitation and greed, Costa Rican RED targets small to medium-sized landowners, and it works. It works because it gives them a little bit of money to pay some extra help to manage and keep the forest intact. So they use that extra help to manage a little eco-lodge or something like that. And the country has reforested itself. And no other country has done that in the history of the planet. But now, Costa Rican red is now the model for the new red that occurred in the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. And it was really Costa Rican red that guided that. Quietly, Costa Ricans don't brag about themselves. They just quietly go about their business. And they're just brilliant people, and they've done some, a really remarkable job. And so uh, uh, that model has worked, and it is being replicated, and that's why we did the documentary film on it. The Costa Rican example is yeah. one example where, where the environment has been protected uh, to a very great extent. It's not complete. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of problems, and transportation is a big issue. And, uh, you know, San Jose, you can't get anywhere at 5 o'clock in the afternoon there. But they've done some great things, but they have things still to go.
1: Still work left to do. Yeah. So, you know, PACS started with pure conservation. You bought the rainforest and donated it to be protected. Mm -hmm. Do you think conservation is enough or... Are there more? Is there more that needs to be done?
3: Well, no. We have, we have to change our way of thinking and doing things in the world. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, there. I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying that everything he's doing is great, but he is amazing what he has done. Uh, by, I mean there are so many Teslas driving around the world right now, and you know they're zero emission vehicles. And it's a really remarkable achievement and accomplishment. And, and architecture. If I were starting over again, I would look at architecture. Because if you design a building, according to natural law, you'll never need to provide electricity for it, artificial electricity, like alternating current and coming in from some coal-fired power plant. We can design buildings now that are not only energy efficient but energy exporters and this building where I'm at is one of them so I generate twice as much electricity on this complex of these three homes than I than we use really? and that's happening everywhere in terms of the design of building passive solar design using trees to cool homes using uh, uh, the trom walls to collect solar heat in the winter to heat the home. And using the orientation of the home and the building to natural law and tracking su- the, the light coming in and put so, you know uh, solar tubes all over so you get daylighting technologies. I love the the, trans- the, the, the transformation that is taking place in Walmarts where they're taking old fluorescent tubes and putting uh, tubes that contain uh, 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 a gas, krypton gas, inside these tubes and then are connected with uh, fiber optics to a solar collector on the roof that tracks the sun. You take the fiber optics from there and it goes and connects into the old fluorescent tube lighting and now what you have is all day long you've got the Sun that's providing the light for that building and this is free energy you know it's free energy and it's just a matter of thinking about the design of how to build buildings that materials that generate electricity that provide cover for rain and everything but also have multiple use materials and building buildings in accordance with natural law so that the home is heated and cooled by the sunlight like it used to be it was done architecturally and we're going back to that now and it's an exciting field. It's a wonderful field. I went into a home once in Colorado and the the architect who is an old green architect from the 60's and 70's when we started on this path, he would bring light in through a window Bounce it under the floor of the kitchen and bounce it up underneath the table and bounce it back into the interior space of the home. And while we were in there, we we felt a constant breeze. And he, use, he was using, uh, coming down from all over the, the house and it was moving air through the home. And then he was using, and he would use... Uh, trom walls and walls on the outside to melt the snow by bouncing light off of the wall. Hmm. And so there's so many things that biomimicry can do mm-hmm. in terms of learning how nature does things and simply replicating it. You know, Mother Nature is the greatest uh, technology uh, in the universe. I
2: guess I have a quick question. Um, sure. With everything that, that you've talked to us about, what what is your projection for PAX 2030? <laughs> oh,
3: 2030. Well, I don't know if I'll be around <laughs> 2030 to to see how that's going to wash out in 2030. But I think that uh, that there's a there's something taking place on the planet that's really exciting. Um, and it's an awakening that's taking place. It's uh, I wish it were happening more quickly because I don't think we have a whole lot of time to deal with that. But uh you know I think I think one of our one of the things that I'm going to focus on is honoring people who are doing great things in the world. And I think we can do that. Uh the Pax Natura award is a lovely award. And uh when I J- Jane sent me a picture of her working in her room about uh, a few days ago, it was her birthday on April the third, by the way. And uh, so uh, I sent her some flowers and some chocolates, and she sent me back a really nice uh, note. And she said, uh, uh, "What she was? She's reaching more people now than she's ever reached in her life, and she's reaching millions without having to go anywhere. And she just sits up in her attic, which is also her bedroom." But she's got that Chief Joseph Peace blanket right on her lap when she's talking to me. Too. She's sending me this photo. And so we we can draw attention to people that are doing the right things in the world. And I think that's very important. I think we have a lot more to do. And I want to do a lot more in terms of agroecology in not only Guatemala and, and Mexico. Uh, but also in Colombia, which is devastating going on. And Brazil, my God. What's happening in Brazil right now, i got to send this stuff out to everybody because I know, no, I know everybody's sick of the bad news. But what's happening in Brazil now is just, it's so criminal that I don't know how to describe it. What's, they're destroying some of the most critical places on the planet. And we need to draw attention to that, and we need to we need to honor those people that are trying to 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 restore to restore food sovereignty uh, in Guatemala and, and Mexico, food sovereignty and sustainability. It's their technology; it's not ours. You know, we di- we didn't teach the Costa Ricans how to do the forest conservation program. We just took their successful program, we took it on the road to the international carbon markets and we took it to the, uh, the cop, COP conference of the parties. And the same thing now with agroecology. We need to take that concept and expand it because you cannot deal with climate change until you deal with agriculture. It's not just about stopping the destruction of forests agriculture is a crucial component for dealing with climate change. And so we have to continue our work that way. We've already started it.
2: Um, I think it's, it's wonderful that you're also targeting like Latin America, um, and it's often right. a place that's it's often forgotten, and much of the, the, the attention is, is somewhere else. So yeah, Peru hopefully in the future
0: will be will be an area too. I would, I would like to ask something. Sure. Um, as opposed to Elizabeth thinking about the future, I would like for you to tell us what advice would you give to your younger self or any young uh, activist or young person out there that's listening to us.
3: That's I think a little bit easier for me, I think, at this point, and that is uh to thine own self be true, you know, follow your heart. Um it it can be a, a challenging road, but you know, uh because we are we do have financial constraints we have uh, you know we have to earn a living and we have to have a home and we have to have all these things but never lose sight of the fact that uh i think never lose sight of the fact that there's an expression in the vedas from vedas i've done some work on and i've i've got this book that i'm finally pub- publishing about this and it's called. Uh, there's an expression called "aham." Oh, by the and by the way, your aunt published this for me and came up with the design for it, called "Timeless Wisdom." And uh, Luisa Gonzalez de la Vega, her aunt, and uh, and I think that um, there's an expression. It's called "aham brahmasmi," and that is, I am the totality, the brain of nature. Is patterned upon the brain of the universe. So the uh, human being thinks like nature thinks. And if we could harness the deepest level of our own soul, the deepest level of our own thought process, we would eventually come to a point that is, that is non-reductive and unbounded. Consciousness is non-reductive. It's non-reductive. And it will never be reductively explained. It's not like tearing apart a plant. Consciousness is holistic. It's it's a holistic value. And the deeper you go into your own self, the closer you get to the natural world because the closer you get to the way nature thinks. And so when you see a beautiful sunset, it's triggering something in you that reminds you of your connection to that natural world. It, and you've had this all of you've had this ha- happen many many times where you have an experience and it reminds you because you think oh yes that's correct that's correct you know that's correct that's and this is what art can do you know art can remind us of our connection to the natural world and so many ever and music why is it that music or vibration elevates the soul elevates the soul And suddenly you start playing music, especially in Mexico, and suddenly everybody wants to get up and start dancing, because it's registering something deep in your soul that's connected. Because every human being, every single, not just every human being, but consciousness, is universal. It's a universal consciousness. And every human being participates in that same unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion an unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion. And and each one of us have the infinite capacity to harness that intelligence that governs the universe. And let me tell you, that's not just... A, I'm not just giving a figure of speech. That is what the saints of India and the great sannyazis and masters of the Ved have known for centuries. And many people know. I think... Pope Francis is right in alignment with this. He gets it. He knows deep in his soul that he is part. I am the totality. And you are the totality. And that means you have the power of nature. You have the power of nature's intelligence within you. And every human nervous system has the ability to harness that. Animals are also, they have that, but they don't have quite the ability to harness it like we do. We can harness it to to better ourselves. So to thine own self be true. Go to the deepest level of your own soul. Your intuition is always more accurate, right, than your intellect, because the intuition is closer to natural law. And so the different layers of consciousness the intellect, the emotions, intuition and even beyond intuition to the deepest value, that transcendental value of consciousness that's lurking there but nobody knows it's there because they don't spend time cultivating it and going into themselves so go into the self harness the deepest value within you bring it out into the world and live it Uh, this is the greatest advice every master always gives Christ said, The kingdom of heaven is within you, and you should seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all else shall be added unto you. And in the Vedas they know that if you don't know who or what is doing the knowing, then you don't know anything about anything. So you must know who is doing the knowing. Who are you? What are you? Self-knowledge knowledge. Is the greatest challenge that we all have. And knowing the self is knowing that you are aham brahmasmi, you are the totality. You are. When I see something in nature, I, I, it's beauty, and beauty to me is everything. That beauty in nature, I recognize, is part of, is the reason, I am beautiful too. I have. I'm not talking about now with my losing my hair and everything and a big gut but I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that, that that my consciousness and the consciousness uh, that governs a plant and a tree we come from the same field we're playing in the same field and that's why humans respond to protecting nature because they've forgotten who they are corporations have forgotten who they are. They're only concerned about the bottom line making a buck. They don't care about the destruction of the planet. They just care about that. but they because they have forgotten who they are. So our biggest challenge is to get them to, to remind them how close we are to our natural world and remind them that we are a part of it. With every breath we take, with every spoonful morsel of food we take, we bring the intelligence of the universe into our soul. And that intelligence, combined with our nervous system, begins the process of, of healing and health. And so healthy food, healthy air, healthy water is a secret to a healthy life. Mother, come home to natural law. That's the greatest... Challenge to every human being, at any age, is to come home to natural law.
1: Well, well, thank you for saying that.
3: You're <laughs> welcome. All right, blessings and peace. Namaste, Jay Guru Dev. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. You bet. Bye bye.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Radio Natura. We'd like to give an especially big thank you to Randall for participating in the interview and for his ongoing support for Radio Natura. Randall and the rest of the PAX board are the ones who make it possible for us to tell these unique stories. You can find out more about the organization at paxnatura.org. If you'd like to get in touch with us, drop us an email to podcast at paxnatura.org. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.